0: Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out, I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I have founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I have ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There are some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too.
1: I do want to tell you another thing about the program or his program. And this is so true about athletes and elite level athletes, perfectionism. Because perfectionism is really tough and it leads to burnout and it leads to low self-esteem. And it's one of these things that's it's an endless gnawing, like a buzzsaw in your head. And so one of the things that we did together was that we did some exposure work to making mistakes in other parts Mm. of his life, because he was an excellent student. He played musical instrument at a very high level. And I said to him, make some mistakes intentionally that are gonna be low stakes and make a mistake on a math test that's obvious. Tell your teacher that two plus two equals six. Put it on a piece of paper, misspell your name. Just small things that we might laugh about, but for a perfectionist are really hard.
0: What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey, Squash fans, welcome back to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor Malley, and I'm very excited to bring you another episode today. It's been a while since I've been doing long-form interviews, and my guest today, I think this is at least three or four, at least three years in the making, so I'm glad to finally get one of our conversations on the record. And uh, that's Matt Munich, or I should actually say Dr. Matt Munich originally from New Haven, Connecticut, but calling in today from Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks a lot, Connor. It's really great to be here.
0: So I was actually thinking of you recently because there's a book I've been reading. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, given your body of work. And there's one line that really stuck out to me. And I was thinking, I want to get your thoughts on this. So the author said, over time, I learned more from listening to my patients or clients than I did from reading books, attending lectures. Or talking to experts. And I wanted to get to your observations on what that meant to you.
1: Yeah. First of all, I'm really glad that you mentioned that book. Uh, as a trauma therapist, I, that's I, on day one, I say, okay, read this book. Right. It's really, absolutely. It's titanic in our field. You know, what that means to me or what that reminds me of is that when I was in school, Studying for this, uh, a teacher said to me, man, you're, you're just going to learn so much from your clients. And I thought, what? what? We're, we're helping. We're the one. We're the teachers. And, and that's just been so true uh, again and again and again. They, they just teach us so much. I, I think that's true about kids, too. If you have mm. that framework for children, that I'm your parent, I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're going to learn about life through me. But actually, if you reverse that and see the world through their eyes, my kid has taught me so much about joy that, and, and other things, but that's a very important line, I think, as a coach too.
0: Yeah. Is there anything that comes to mind when it, it it really sets you on a different trajectory with a a client of yours?
1: I would say that it's much more about seeing something different through their eyes. Um, So they'll name an experience that is very near to me, but they'll say it in a way that I hadn't. We hope that's happening the other way, too, that I say certain things that resonate. But it's usually when they do that where I just feel so closely connected to them. And I think it's on the other side, too. And that feels to me like the nature of the therapeutic action of the work where we connect on that level. And essentially, we're looking at core human truths, truths about the human soul. So I think it's more than like that. Also, of course, experiences that they've had that I would never have. I worked with veterans and they would tell me about being in Vietnam and all of a sudden I was there. It's that sort of thing about, oh, yeah, of course, being (coughs) in combat affects your hearing forever. Or, of course, you're worried that your soul has been injured forever. Yeah. Things I would never occur, that would never occur to me, but then come up again and again in my life once I've seen them once through mm-hmm. them. Interesting.
0: I like that. That sort of, it doesn't lend itself exactly to what we're going to talk about, but it does in, in another way. And one of the things we're going to talk through is your latest body of work. And it occurred to me that this feels like the perfect blend of just all your passions of the field of psychology, sports, but then also helping people. What does that mean to you?
1: Well, you said it exactly right. In this work that we're talking about today, it really does feel to me like everything that I've ever done (laughs) is coming through. All of the strands of my life have been woven into this work. I do think it's addressing a very dire need in in sport, but it also brings up what do we do when we're playing sport and how can people help us? How does it fit into human life? How can we make it better? How can we take away those life lessons from sport and make them real?
0: One of the things we're going to do is go through a, a case study that you did and you shared it with me. So thank you for that. But I think as a way to set that up too, there was a, a separate presentation you sent to me about what's called the well-attuned entourage. And I love it that in one of your opening pages or your, your, your slides, you were actually showing a scene from the movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer. And I'd love to, if you could just talk us through a little bit about why that scene and what was so impactful about it.
1: One of the things, one of the aspects of my life that made this come to life is my, not just having been a squash player, played in many squash tournaments, but being a teacher at high school and seeing how parents help and don't help. We're here as parents to really facilitate growth, but so often the things that we do impede growth So I was on the receiving end of that before I did that myself as a parent in the small ways that I've gotten in Max's way, but having been a ref. So that scene is very, very related to being a ref because as you remember, the parents get out of control, they get into fisticuffs. And so the tournament director has to lock them away. And when I was refing at the JCT level, the elite junior level, I just saw scene after scene that were just so unfortunate that could have gone better and unfortunately it was the parents. And when you're doing anything with kids, as I learned from teaching high school or coaching squash, you're, and being a parent, the the parent training is so important so that parents can help. Parents wanna help, they they have the best of intentions, but often what they're doing is getting in the way. Another movie in which that that comes out is the movie King Richard, which is about the, the Richard Williams the dad of mm. Venus and Serena Williams. And he just has them not play junior tournaments. He can't believe the behavior that's happening. And so he pulls them.
0: That's around the time that we were really get to know each other. So we are very much in the trenches there. And I felt like I had a front row ticket to human psychology. It was really, and I, unlike you, was thrusted in with no experience, no knowledge, and just really trying to orient myself about what's going on. And it really did occur to me the law of unintended consequences of like you said of I see where all your intention is and you want this and it's it was where the ramifications and there's so much to unpack there but why don't we jump into a little bit of the case study here because I think this is a a bit of an example that brings us um, front and center and this is about a, a young squash player named Peter who's around 15 years old and you know, I'd love to for you to help paint the before scene.
1: The before scene was that people just making that transition from cl- playing in his club and doing pretty well to, to U.S. squash events, or he was moving up from bronze to silver. And as the stakes get higher, everyone just starts stressing out more. And one of the things that I talk about is that new scenes bring new challenges and mm-hmm. often you need new skills to, to meet new challenges. So what, when when the scene was presented to me, and it was one that I had seen frequently as a ref or had seen snippets of, is that everyone's stressed out, right? One of the things that has to, that that the truth about elite junior squash and elite athletes, elite athletic competition everywhere is that everyone just needs to chill out. Everyone needs to chill out. Everyone's stressed out. So you've got the wrong hormones. You've got some intense neurochemistry firing. So Peter was not playing well, which often happens. You're playing well at the club, but then you get to the tournament and you're not, you're just not playing well. You're not doing the things that you've been coached. And so the people in his corner, which in this case happened to be his parents, were trying to help him, but were, the, the dad was being harsh. The mom was nervous and trying to get between the the dad and the son as you might understand and so it, it wasn't going well for him he was struggling to play well he was cognizant that he was disappointing himself that he was disappointing his parents and then the scenes after the tournaments were that i heard about were really unfortunate there were some fights at home about this and Peter heard those fights. He wasn't a part of them. So then he knew that not only was he not playing well and he was disappointing them, but he was causing a schism between them. And that's just, all of it is understandable. You can I, I can certainly imagine being one of those players, one of those actors in that play, but it just wasn't mm-hmm. going well. No one was having fun. They were feeling far away from each other. And I think Peter was on his way to saying, this just isn't Fun for me <laughs> this isn't worth it so that's when I that that's when I came in and, and fortunately they knew that, that hey this wasn't working when you say stressed out that
0: feels sometimes like a catch-all right it's the <laughs> result of like that's how you end up feeling but let's unpack what were some of the contributing either factors to being stressed or what was what did being stressed actually look like
1: well, in his case, it was what I referred to, which is that he wasn't playing well. And when I talked to him about that, there, there were so many things that led up to his not playing. There were so many stressors that you wouldn't think about. What is it like for a new player or a player new to a silver to actually walk into that building? Mm-hmm. What is it like for a player new to that environment to look at the draw sheet? which he and I talked a lot about looking at the draw sheet and completely melting down. I can't beat those players. Or if I beat this player, look who I'm going to play, which we've all done. But so that by the time he got on court, it was already set up that it wasn't going to go well. So that's what it looked like for him. What it looked like for the dad was, is that as he lost points three, four, and five, his, his, with desperation, which turned into anger or frustration, I think is the best thing to say, was mounting. And so that by the time Peter would come off court for game one, he would say, here are the things you need to do. You need to do this, this, and this, or wait a minute, we, you already know how to do this. You can beat this person. And one of the worst things to hear when you're losing is you can win. <laughs> but also it was tone, It's not just the Mm -hmm. words that you say, and you've probably been the recipient of this when you have someone in your corner and their tone is just too harsh or something Mm -hmm. like that. And they're trying to help, but they're getting in the way. They're making the situation worse. So you can imagine he loses the first game, then Peter loses the second game, doing exactly the same things he was doing in game one. And now the dad is getting more stressed and his frustration is turning into anger. And the mom is getting more stressed because she's watching Peter, not doing well, knowing, oh my God, how can I help Peter? But also here's my husband, Peter's dad, who's getting more and more frustrated. So that's, I don't know if that paints the picture, but that's what it looks like where they're all just, everybody's stressed out in this. Everyone's tension is bouncing off each other and amplifying the tension and peter's kind of stuck in the middle and you can guarantee that his play didn't get better in game three
0: as you're talking it occurs to me i think anytime you have a one-on-one relationship that has its own complexities and challenges but then just adding that third person right suddenly it's a whole nother layer of dynamics going on and so it sounds like immediately there just the three-way dynamics is pretty Palpable of everyone understands what's going on, but not having a, it's a solution. And so, let's talk a little bit about then. You did get involved, and what starts to happen? How do you approach this?
1: The first thing that happens, and this happens in 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 therapy or when you approach any problem, is that when you realize or there's a solution or a path out of it, everybody's stress level goes down. If you say, "I know what's," I hear what's happening. It sounds very hard, so they get validated. These kinds of things do happen in new settings, new stressors. All of a sudden people feel, okay, great. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me and there's a way out. And the things that made this, that set this up for success are the things that set anything, any therapy up for success, any work like this up for success being a student, anything where you're trying to grow is curiosity and willingness. They were super Mm. curious about the problem, they weren't afraid of it. And they were very willing. So most of what I said, landed well, they were curious about it, and they were willing to try it. And that's really what you would want as a coach, as a teacher, as a therapist. Because if everyone's undefended, if they say, hey, Matt, we tried this. It didn't work. Okay, try this. Or, hey, we tried this. We need more of this. This really does seem to be working. And when you were coming into
0: this, because you developed a program around this, right? And were you also learning as you go? Or had you spent some time sort of understanding or drawing from different walks of life to put this together?
1: Yeah. Everything, I think, was coming together for me. I started with Peter as this whole idea had come to me from being in in that JCT space, but it was also around the time I had just done some research on what junior squash was like for people who had made it to the elite level. I had done that research when I was finished as part of the requirement for my social work degree. I was also in my training for this had been introduced into a fabulous therapeutic school or modality. And it just all fit the modality, which I was, which I thought was fascinating, worked exactly in these kinds of situations where people's emotion is very high. The emotion is so high that they don't know how to solve that problem. And it leads Mm. to very ineffective solutions. In fact, that's part of the backbone of it is that when people are very stressed out, experiencing high levels of emotion, they literally don't know what to do. And so they come up with solutions that look bad, but they are actually solutions for that high level of emotion. So as you say, a lot was coming together and it just felt natural. It felt obvious. Uh oh This needs a framework.
0: I love what you said about the the curiosity and willingness being just a core pillar of of how to approach this. And so you said you you deployed a framework. Let's talk through, you, you get situated with the family. Talk us through what starts to happen.
1: The first thing that starts to happen is that you say something like, everyone needs to calm down. Everyone needs a way to calm down, not just all the time, but particularly in those moments of high stress. So there's two things that need to happen. There there's four skill domains in this system and two of them need to be employed right away. The first one I call coping, all of them are taken over from this modality, but I've renamed them because a lot of clinical terms are very off-putting. So the first one is, we call it coping. And coping really just means, what do I do with myself when I'm overwhelmed by high level of emotion? How do I cope with that? How do I feel better? How do I get into my right mind? And the first skill, which I start with absolutely everyone, all of my clients, hey, nice to meet you now, learn how to breathe. Just learn. And it's a big skill. It's a simple skill, but you have to practice it a lot. And another thing happened, I taught him that skill. And I said, now teach your parents that skill. You teach Mm. your parents that skill. I'm not going to. So in that move, we have reversed the, the power dynamic a little bit. We've given him a little bit more of a voice. It's not all coming down on him from above. Um, The other thing that happens when you introduce that skill is it works. It it works, it's been shown physiologically to work, to bring stress levels down and it feels good.
0: If I'm not mistaken, isn't that also doing a nervous system reset? Is that basically what's happening or what's what's the other physiological aspects that's going on? The
1: main aspect of it is that you're giving more oxygen to your brain. As our stress levels start to go up, we start breathing very shallow or increasingly mm-hmm. more shallow. And what that does is, so what diaphragmatic breathing, we might call it belly breathing, it does two things. One, it gives your brain more oxygen, but also it slows down your subjective experience of time. So as we get stressed out, another thing happens, things start to go too fast. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that we play badly, say things we shouldn't say, throw things, because things just get sped up. And it's amazing what can happen when your our subjective experience of time slows down because now we have more options.
0: And what's the sort of range of that kind of breathing that you need? Is it a couple seconds, a couple minutes? It depends. How do you approach that?
1: It starts working very fast. That's the nice thing about it. It starts to work very fast if you've practiced it. What my goal in every single case is that's not just a practice, but that's how you breathe. I'm trying to turn people into horizontal breathers rather than vertical breathers so that that's on option. All you have to do in order to use it in crisis is to deepen it. You don't have to think, oh, wait a minute, I should breathe diaphragmatically. I, or belly breathe or engage belly breathing is that it's there on offer all the time. So for example, you lose a point, you have 10 seconds. Maybe you're tired and so you start breathing more, or more deeply anyway, but that's a good time to deepen the breath. It slows things down. You do reset. It does help you reset. The other part about it is that, and this is another whole skill domain, is that you have to notice. So noticing is another skill domain. You have to notice that you're stressed out. You have to notice that you're breathing more shallow. You have to notice that your mind is sped up so that you can intervene. And if you think about it, going to a breath is a very simple intervention, but it's not available to you if you don't know what's happening, if you don't know you need to.
0: So would noticing be the first step then?
1: It seems like they're entwined, but I would say both of them, yeah, noticing has to be the first step of, oh, this is happening. So one of the, but it does happen, for example, diaphragmatic breathing doesn't happen overnight what i say is you have to do two five-minute practices a day and after about three months not only does your ability to use it get much better but your ability to notice that you need it gets much better so they are intertwined but yes noticing and noticing there's a whole host of skills we call them mindfulness
0: so you're almost trying to uh make a um, muscle memory, like an unconscious muscle memory that the breathing will just happen, but you also need the, oh, wow, this is happening. Is that how they're intertwined?
1: Yeah, it's both. You do want it to become automatic, but you also want to cue it to deepen it. So I call it a breath. I also call it a rescue and I call it, I call it a go-to. So it's both how you breathe. It's a go-to and it's a rescue and rescue is when you're in crisis. Go to is when you go, okay, I'm going to deepen this. Yeah. Did that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So um, we were going through the skill domains here and you touched on noticing. Is there anything else within that?
1: Noticing is huge. It's called mindfulness. Everyone's gotten hip to mindfulness. Mindfulness is one of those extremely simple skill ideas that's very difficult to acquire. And really it's about awareness, it's about expanding your awareness of what's happening right now and not having judgment about it. And everything depends on awareness. It's the core skill of life, you would say. It's been called the acorn and the tree. If you have this practice, then you have the whole thing, but it starts very small. And those are very difficult practices. Meditation is the most clear example of it, which is a very difficult practice. Just sit there, return your mind to the breath. And I think the question about this, adapting this for this setting is making these things accessible or easier. So there's a bunch of skills that are particular to sport or to this aspect, a bunch of mindfulness skills that can be fun, that kids can access. Um, that you can tell that again, that you can teach it to the kid. Say, okay, now turn around and teach your parent this, because your parent needs this too.
0: So, you, you, in in the coping, which which was the breathing diaphragmatic breathing, you asked Peter to teach his parents. How did you approach noticing then, with regard to the the family or the entourage?
1: I will tell you how I did it with Peter. For one, we did a drill called the spot on the wall drill, which is sit down or stand about two feet from the wall. Find a mark on the wall. This is in your bedroom. It can be on the squash court, but and stare at it for two minutes and, and then just tell me what happened. What happened during those two minutes? Write it down. Tell me the next time we meet. It was really difficult. My mind went to my homework. My mind went to how difficult this was and everything is good. That's great that you noticed that because that's what we're trying to enhance. Another skill that I use, I'm not sure that Peter and I did that, grab a squash ball and look at the dots, look at the yellow, Mm -hmm. look at the two yellow dots. Yeah, just look at them and then tell me what happened.
0: And is part of your approach always teaching the player in this regard and then they pass it along or are you also interacting with the parents?
1: There's a little bit less, less interaction with the parents. They're always welcome. They're always welcome to contact me. Not every skill, excuse me, not every skill gets passed along to the parent. But one of the things that we do is everyone gets a, what we call a diary card or everyone gets, gets a list of skills that's tailored for them. So mom and dad might not do all the skills that Peter does or needs to do, but They're working too, which is really exciting, but it's also an obstacle to the program because you can imagine parents might not want to do that kind of thing. And they take time. No, No one has a ton of time on their hands. The other thing I would say about this is that it is the case that people are already doing effective behavior. All of these skills are not new to them but let's make them explicit. Let's make it a skill. And then let's put it on your diary card. Some you're going to need to practice more than others.
0: And so what would be an example of a skill that there that is positive, that is helpful, that you want to highlight and contribute? What, what's an example there?
1: There's a whole skill domain called preparing. And that's all the things that you need to do to get ready for a tournament, for a match, for a tournament weekend. And In this case, Peter's parents, they'd been professional athletes, or so they knew this is how you get yourself ready. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of stuff they just didn't need to know. You know, he needs to be well, sleep well, he needs to eat well, those kinds of things. Now, there were still skills in that area that they needed to know Peter was working on so they could support him in that area. For example, Just as an example, we did a a lot of work just about looking at the draw.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, it's, it's, you're so right that this is, I'm glad that's part of the sequence because it it feels like a skipped step sometimes. And even when I'm talking to people, it's like, yeah, and you know, where you're seated and you're like, how am I not number one? Or, and then suddenly you are number one. You're like, wait a minute, (laughs) now the pressure's (laughs) on me. So there's all these Uh, inherent dynamics which are essentially outside of your control but you need to be prepared for how you're going to approach it but talk that's my rudimentary understanding so talk me through more of your how you approach it and how you help others approach it
1: you put your finger on it Connor, because we the first time you look at yourself on a draw sheet and your number one seed it's a it's a little mini freak out oh wow i'm supposed to win this whole thing that that's really so it really is about making explicit all everything and you also said where to sit so often someone in the entourage and this you see every time you go to a tournament uh, a fan someone in that person's entourage is sitting in a place that you might understand them to sit close to the back wall and their meta communication is really not helpful. They're groaning, they're wincing, even the things that they say are encouraging. Come on, this point, or use it, or focus. If you ask Peter, what does it mean when you hear a parent say, come on, focus, Peter might say something like, I hear pressure. Everyone's trying to do the right thing, but, so that's something that we talk about. Where do you want your mom to sit? There was a lot of work about what's happening in between games. As you often might experience from dads, dad was intense, loud. I I had Peter show me the face, show me, imitate in a sense, the face of his dad. And he did it (laughs) like that. He did it in a second and I went, whoa. That would not help me between games. And that's another area where Peter had to, I, I wasn't going to talk to his dad. Peter had to talk mm-hmm. to his dad and ask him for things. And you can imagine how empowering that is for, for a 14-year-old, 15-year-old to say, hey, if you can't do this better, I need to be talking to someone else during in between games. Or you can't watch me anymore the nuclear option.
0: (laughs) I I like this approach of really empowering the athlete and giving them the tools versus Mm -hmm. you just being the sole interventionist, right? You're teaching them the fish. How are you coaching someone through to do that? That just seems like a pretty wide gap. And I'm putting myself in this situation. Maybe some kids are fine speaking up for themselves, but I certainly wasn't trained at age 13 or 14 or 15 even. How are you preparing them for that?
1: That's a whole another one of the skill domains in the package, which is, I call it interacting. So fortunately from the model, there are a whole host of skills about how to do that. And what you said is so true. I'm still working on this, how to ask for what I want and what I need. And this is what I mean about this program, helping people get the life skill. We always talk about, oh, sport, it's so great. It teaches us life lessons it only does that if you make them explicit and you forefront them because very Mm -hmm. quickly we just go it's not whether or not you win or lose it's how you play the game but that's not true we forefront it's it's true but we tend to forefront winning or losing we just default that way Mm -hmm. but this skill of asking for what you need from your environment is a lifelong lesson you always need to do that you need to do that in your workplace You need to do that in your primary relationship. In fact, you need to do that with your child. But there's a framework for it. So there's a skill and you say, hey, here's the skill. And you say, ask me, pretend I'm your dad. We're going to go through it. And I say, I don't think that's going to work. Let's work a little bit more on this part of it. But the first part of it is empowering him to say, yes, you can do this. You actually Mm -hmm. can do this. And then you can Mm -hmm. imagine when... Peter does that, and he gets the response of yes, and the dad does that, how incredibly empowering that is. And that's a life lesson, right? If you can do that there, you can do that anywhere.
0: I, I'm sort of uh, envious of, of Peter at 15, practicing that skill, because only in the past maybe two or three years, I've been realizing that that's not a skill I've fully perfected, right? And And even... I think there's a lot of blind spots sometimes. So like in certain scenarios, I could do that. Let's say work and advocating for I'm finally in a situation where I know what I want. And it's a hidden journey for me to get there to finally know exactly what I want. And that I'm saying it versus a recognition along the way. And where do I even want to navigate from the beginning? So it feels like I'm in my, this like desperate or in a scenario where I'm uncomfortable and I have to find the advocate for myself versus being more purposeful in my journey. And so I'm trying to, I've shifted towards trying to be more purposeful in my journey, but I'm still struggling with that. So can you give me a quick 90 second coaching (laughs) tip on how you ask for what you want?
1: I'm glad you asked. So this is perhaps one of the more famous DBT skills that Exists and it a lot of DBT skills have acronyms, and this one is called Dear Man. And anyone who knows DBT knows about Dear Man, it's a wonderful skill. Dear Man, so the dear is describe, Dad. In between games, when you come and tell me something like, I don't know what I'm doing, it makes me feel sad, it makes me feel anxious, and it makes me feel like I have the I I notice I have the thought that you're not on my side. So then the A is the ask. It's the assert. I really am going to ask you to try to be nicer. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to try to lower your voice. And I'm going to ask you to say things that I can use on court. And then the R is I'm going to reinforce that. I know that this will go better. I know that not only will I play better, but I know our relationship will be better. That's a huge reinforcer for dad. Yeah, so the man part is to stay mindful so if he says, yeah, but you're messing up, it's to stay mindful, be a broken record. I'm asking you to lower your voice. I'm asking you to be nicer to me. Yeah, but you keep messing up. You keep hitting the tin. Then please tell me to hit the pull higher. This is tough. This is really tough for Peter. And we say, so what do you think your dad is going to say? The A is act, act, like you're keeping your cool. You don't have to actually be keeping your cool. but You have to act like it so that you don't get riled up. And then the end is that you have to be willing to negotiate because he might not be able to do all of it. So mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. you clarify what's the main thing. And it's if you lower your voice, that will really help. If you tell me not what I'm doing wrong, but what I'm doing right, that would really help. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's really powerful. And I, I, again, my brain and most people do help uh, much better with, with frameworks. And that seems you could operate within that now a question that comes to mind because and trying to highlight the positive right i've competed alone and showed up to a tournament i don't even really know anyone i'm there by myself and that can feel very isolating you're looking inward and there's i think there's a, a lot to be learned there and then there's also where you're around people you know and with your entourage and to your point of sometimes that can be helpful or not helpful with regards to peter and his entourage What was the positive way that the parents could then support them even in between, like when they're on court? Because sometimes it is helpful to be like, come on, you got it, let's go. And I just don't know what those could be in this scenario.
1: I'm not sure I remember all of it, but in the skill package, that's part of preparing. So Mm -hmm. everyone should talk about what helps and what doesn't help. So as we're getting ready for this tournament, let's make a plan for what helps and doesn't help part of preparing that skill is coach your kid or talk to your kid not a kid you wish you had or Mm. if your kid isn't ferocious because some kids seem to be I don't mean in a bad way like some kids really know how to go for the jug and some kids that needs to be coached. It's, mm-hmm. I remember my college coach saying it's okay to win. <laughs> it's okay to win badly. You can really, it's okay. <laughs> and I, Peter needed a little bit of that. But the other thing about it was Peter is a perfectionist and they needed, they knew that, but how do you weave that in? So if you say critical things to him, it's going to be very bad. Or if mm-hmm. you say hit more drop shots, he's going to think they need to be perfect. So we need to come up with a whole system of how we talk to each other. And this is so important. Talk to Peter like he's Peter rather than the athlete you were or the athlete you'd, you'd like him to be. Yeah, that's a huge
0: challenge. Uh, you, you kind of reminded me of there's this line I heard on a podcast where I was talking about learning disabilities and it's like, Hey, this is very prevalent out there. But then there's oh like one thing we don't talk about is also then teaching disabilities. Right. So it's, or where those (laughs) gaps are. So it's very much you're using what got you to be successful, but that might not be helpful to the other person. That's what I'm hearing uh, when you talk through that.
1: As we said earlier in this conversation, this is a big parent training program. And one of the things parents need to know, and this is part of the, again, it's both part of the preparing and part of the interacting skill, which is parents need to know that they really are the characters in Peanuts where the, the parents really, the kids hear want want wah. You have to say less, mm-hmm. and then you have to say to your kid, can you repeat back to me what I just said?
0: Wow. So
1: instead of saying 10 things between games, say hit the ball higher, try to clear more, and take some more time between points. We talked about that with Matt. We talked about taking your whole 10 seconds take do that. And then Peter's nodding. What did i just say what were the three things it you will be amazed how often the kid is nodding the entire time and then can't repeat back what you just said and instead mm-hmm. of getting frustrated which is the go-to you say great i'm really glad that we just did that i'm going to say them again and the yeah. way that i'm talking right now is another thing that needs to be coached which is being soft being mm-hmm. gentle being validating I completely understand that you didn't hear me. There's a lot going on. The facility is loud. Let me say it again. Or what do you need right now? Is there something you need Mm -hmm. right now in order for you to hear me? Or, and then empowering to say, actually, I I, I need to just sit here by myself. Okay, fine. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's helpful to know in this scenario where Peter and his family, that's how they approach it. But would there be uh, a potential player who actually needs the spark, who needs the fire, that you gotta be like, get them pumped up. Or is there a counter to what you said in terms of speaking softly uh, and calm? Would you ever go to the other extreme?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And this is again about coaching your kid, or coaching your player and knowing, oh yeah, the energy tends to sag or gets a little scared by winning rather than scared by losing or scared of losing. Or um, this is what I was saying about ferocity. Some kids have a more obvious fire and some kids need some more kindling <laughs> and, and sometimes it changes. I, I was very lucky to be coached by Peter Briggs in college and I needed a lot of fire. And in between mm-hmm. games, he gave me a lot of fire. He was in my face and I needed that. When I started playing, when we switched to the softball and there was so much more physical work and I was working so hard, I needed someone in my corner who spoke very gently. And I, I was very lucky to have that just really and really incredibly validating man i'm tired and you would say yep you're working very hard but there's a lot of gas in the tank and just hearing that very softly very gently it's very confidence boosting it's not come on no you got it and all of that is parent training
0: so would it still be the way you deliver the messages in a softer tone even if what you're saying could be like more pump up and and more that do you always recommend the the softer tone approach
1: I think the main thing I recommend is that be a discussion and an ongoing discussion, and it may change over the tournament weekend. So that just be part of the discussion about how we're talking to each other and that everyone be in an undefended place. You kept getting louder and louder to me. I didn't think I was getting through to you. How, how, what would be a good way in that moment to get through to you? We
0: touched on making sure that we're coaching the way that the player wants to be coached. Right. And I think that is very important, but it also occurs to me sometimes being the eye in that story, you're not always seeing what's going on. And sometimes it can be helpful. There can't be a scenario. Where it's helpful to give them not exactly what they want, but what they need. And how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, yeah I really do tend to think parents are, are there's a little bit of hubris there. of I'll tell you what you need. Rather than I'm going to ask you for what you need in this moment, because kids, kids are pretty good at telling you what they need, even from a very young age. And it's, yeah, sometimes they need to say, no, your parent needs to say, yeah, nope. You, you actually need to work hard harder or something. Yeah. Part of this, by the way, sorry, Connor, part of this, by the way, is that if you're moving up a level from bronze to silver to whatever, there needs to be a lot more rigor in your practice. And parents like that part of the program because you do actually have to work harder. You, you're not gonna just get better at, at a higher level. You're not just gonna get better by working on Dear Man. You have to work harder. And that was one thing that was really there. Peter was willing to work harder, harder with his trainer. But is there,
0: if we were to take the positive intention that the parents or anyone else that was standing behind can see what's going on and that person on court isn't capable at that time because you're very much in your own world. And so they're trying to give you that suggestion that maybe you don't see. So it's not what you want, but it might be what might be helpful at the time. So how do you reconcile that where it's in the most genuine intent that like, I'm going to give you what, what is actually going to be helpful here, but not what
1: you want? I think that's a game time decision. And I think when you work on these, and like I say, this may already be there. It's not that I could show up and we will tell you that people do tend to know each other pretty, pretty well. But I do think all of that becomes much more possible when the system is talking more about process, because mm-hmm. then it's, yeah. there's much more flexibility in the system. And I think there's a main component here, which is trust. When we miss each other... There's less trust, even if it's a parent with, oh, he's just going to yell at me or you're just yelling at me. But when we've worked on a process, it's much more flexible and the trust is there and it allows the player to hear something that they might not want to hear, but that they need in the parent to deliver that message.
0: That makes sense. So it's making sure that the process and the system will be able to catch it over time, maybe not exactly there.
1: That's the attuned part that's the mm-hmm. attuned part and we tune each other it's not just yeah. we tune each other we are and parents and kids are in this system of being super attuned we sometimes we call it attachment that's the fancy clinical term but it's built in it's built into the deal it's built into the bargain mm-hmm. you can either do that well or you can do that poorly but the stakes <laughs> are quite high the stakes are very high for that
0: So we've touched on three of the four skill domains, coping, noticing, interacting, but there's a fourth one, balancing. Could you talk about how that one plays into the system?
1: Balancing overlaps with preparing in the sense that I need to do everything to keep my emotions on an even keel. So that's why it overlaps with preparing because these are things like, and I mentioned them as part of preparing, but they're much more in an ongoing way. How do I get to bed at the same time? How do I not pull all-nighters? How do, I, how do I eat in an ongoing way that keeps me fueled, but that avoids crashes? What do I need to do when I think about it? What are the pitfalls for staying on an even keel? That's one of the things about high school kids. They, they're so busy you could go from having a very big test or writing a big paper. This is true in college too, right into a tournament weekend. Yeah. Which don't break up. don't have a big breakup right before the national.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. What? And I think this also, this is very applicable to adults too, right? I see this so many times you're going from yourself being a parent, you're doing this, then you're, you got a client that's running late and then you're running to the squash courts and you're jumping on a court without even giving it some thought you're you're maybe not warming up properly and you're just jumping into things so you know that that mental shift is so important as we go into anything especially if you have, you have no hope of competing really unless you 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 do a lot of the things you've
1: talked about when i work with stress <clears throat> excuse me when i work with stress one of the things that we do work on intentionally are transitions how do you transition from one activity to another so that you're not suturing one moment to another, so that you're not bringing the stress from one moment into the stress for another, so that you, if you go into a stressful moment, you're not doubling up. You've had a time to to rinse off the other one. What are some ways that you coach doing that? So just on that note, if you think about being in a tournament and being in that facility all weekend – with the stress, the noise, the stress, other parents being stressed, other kids being stressed. And you think about that by the time you make it to the final, that's just so much stress on your shoulders. So one Mm -hmm. skill in there is to leave the facility frequently. When you're not playing or refing. leave the venue, just leave the venue. If I could tell a quick story from the professional world, The year that Hideki Masayama won his Masters, there was a rain delay in the final. I don't remember how long it was. When he came back from his rain delay, I don't know if he shot like six birdies in a row or something. And everyone asked, what on earth did you do? Did you take some mind altering substance? Did what did you yeah. do? Did you call your mother? I sat in my car. I left the facility. Think about mm-hmm. how many people who were hanging out in the locker room, getting each other nervous, waiting for the rain to stop. Same thing with adults, when you have had a stressful day at work and you are going to walk through that door of a partner who's also had a difficult day, but has been home dealing with parents, you're walking from stress to stress. So come home, tell people, I'm not home yet. I'm happy to see you all. Go to your bedroom upstairs if that's or happens to be. Change, go from work drag to home drag. Do a three-minute breathing practice. Come down the stairs and say, I'm home. I think that tends to be true for moms, not to gender it too much, where they walk in and everyone wants a piece of mom. Everyone just wants a piece of mom.
0: Sure. That's very helpful. I've usually... The way I've talked to that sometimes is energy management just generally, yes. right? And yeah. and it's also just getting an understanding of what drives your energy. Sometimes social interactions, frankly, it depletes me. I like them, but it depletes me yes. versus other people. Yeah. They need that to actually charge them up. So yes. I think understanding yeah. them.
1: Yeah, I call it scattering or husbanding. You're either scattering your energy or you're husbanding your energy and, and that's it's incredibly important that's part of balancing
0: so i'd like to bring this story of peter a little bit to wrap it up and so we talked to where peter was before interacting with you who was basically struggling to perform the parents weren't were wanting to help but not in a capacity to really give them what that athlete needed at the time you started work with them and deployed your system Um, so talk us through A little bit of the results of what happened what's the after scene where where are they now what's going on how how is it all working
1: i do want to tell you a little bit another thing about the program or his program which and this is so true about athletes and elite level athletes perfectionism because perfectionism Mm -hmm. is really tough and it leads to burnout and it leads to low self-esteem and it's one of these things that's and it's an endless gnawing like a buzz saw in your head. And so one of the things that we did together was that we, we did some exposure work to making mistakes in other parts mm. of his life because he was an excellent student. He played musical instrument at a very high level. And I said to him, make some mistakes intentionally that are going to be low stakes and make a mistake on a math test. That's obvious. Tell your teacher that two plus two equals six put it on a piece of paper, misspell your name. Just small things that are, that you, that we might laugh about, but for a perfectionist are really hard. I think so much athletic burnout comes from perfectionism in the entire system. So that, that was a big part of it. I will say that now that Peter went on to, to win tournaments. He just continued to grow. And some of these skills, they don't go away. They get bigger. So I believe he's playing in college now. And I do think there might have been a chance that squash might have ended in his junior career. So I think that's where he is. I think the main thing is that they started enjoying each other. They started enjoying this process more. They started, I think, the fights at home diminished, but it, it, it taught them how to really derive joy from it, which joy is the treasure. Of course. And so from the first,
0: let's say, point of contact that you, you became involved with this family, how long did that take to start seeing the kind of results you, you were talking
1: about? Oh, man. There's always an intense phase of the work, and that's right up front. And that's why I start with breathing. A, it's the foundational skill, but B, you start feeling better pretty quickly. At the end of a five-minute breathing practice, you just feel better than you did five minutes ago. A little bit of success keeps you on the scent of it. I think our work was the better part of a year, and I would say the first six months were the most intense. But they were very dedicated. They were very dedicated, and I think as athletes, they knew that for a skill system, you needed to practice skills. And I think a lot of people, clients... And athletes alike think that all the work happens in the therapy session or all the work happens when I'm with my coach. And I think the nice thing about athletes is athletes know that you need new skills require hours of practice. And it's not always exciting. It's not always like hitting the nick.
0: (laughs) Yeah. One thing before we we move on, I I loved what you're with the exposure therapy. And it sounds like for Peter, you encourage him to purposely make mistakes in areas that he was actually very highly capable of right would you ever do or encourage scenarios like try something brand new that you know you're gonna be terrible at and see how you go through it
1: absolutely i haven't i don't think i've done that i think generally some of these skills are that where it's a new skill and it's gonna be a mess. And I say that, or it's not, it's going to be awkward. Imagine the skill that I mentioned, dear man, that's a hard skill. We're all still working on it. That's not gonna go well. And then in session, you get to say that any doing it at all is doing it well. Mm-hmm. These are new skills. So being able to come back to me and say the next week I, I did that, it didn't go well. And then here, that's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome that you did it.
0: I appreciate talking through that. And another thing I picked up on as we were talking through it, just how really tailored these programs must be, mm. given each individual is different, but then you got different parents and or different entourages. I guess that's a disclaimer we should make, that while we've talked through this, and maybe some people resonate or understand, maybe there are different parts in this script, but it sounds like it's very personalized or tailored.
1: That's one of the most exciting things about it. That's so much fun, I will say everyone needs to belly breathe. <laughs> I know now you a... <laughs> got me, we're
0: gonna have to after we get offline, you have to teach me that quickly
1: but but yeah that that's really exciting about it that's it, It's a lot of fun to create a system,
0: like I said in the beginning that this body of work really brings together all parts of your walk of life, and I'd like to take a little trip down memory lane to bring people up to speed about how you got to this and um. Post-college, it looks like you you started off in education to begin with, but talk me through a little bit of your journey.
1: Post-college, I went into graduate school for classics. But the other thing that happened post-college is that was around the time we were transitioning from hardball to softball. And softball, I was so much more suited to softball than hardball. I just loved it. I loved the, heart, the physical demands. I loved the scoring. It was handout scoring then. You could come back from eight Love. I I will say being a graduate student allowed me to practice a lot of squash because I could make make my own schedule and a lot of my work could happen at night. Where was this? That was at Brown. And then because I was doing that and, and getting, I don't know, getting relatively good at it, people just, and there weren't that many in Providence, there wasn't anyone really giving lessons. So I became a squash coach as well. So I, I started doing teaching as you do when you're a graduate student as a TA or you're given some classes. But after I graduated, I had, because of the squash thing, largely, I had decided I did not want to be a college professor. So I, I, there is a world where you can be a Latin teacher and a squash coach, and that's that prep school world. And I found a nice yeah. little prep school in West Hartford, Connecticut. And that's where I, looking back on that, I don't think I was very effective I didn't handle parents well. I didn't realize that the main goal there was I think I made the the rookie error of trying to be as intense with my high school kids as I had been. And really now now that I've I have now that I have a kid and I've been around more latency age kids, more elementary school. It, it's supposed to be fun. And I wish I had structured it in a way that it was more fun. But yeah, then you learn how to talk to kids in the corner between games. I didn't learn quite how to deal with parents. I didn't have serious problems, but I, I generally... What What age were you at that time? It took me 10 years to finish that PhD, because it, I think in large measure, because I was playing squash so intensely. And when I ran out of funding, I supported myself with work, with jobs, odd jobs, and things like that. I didn't have a family to support. Yeah, so I was in my 30s, which I think is all, yeah. was also good that i wasn't in my young 20s where a lot of young teachers get out of college and do the prep school world which is a lot of fun
0: i mean i deeply resonate with that both from my coaching perspective as well as then my role at us squash where i got it wrong in the beginning and you're suddenly i you're on the front line or i i was really on the front lines um you know the person that had to answer to all this and was not only setting the structure, making the rules, then enforcing them, right? So suddenly I was like a cop, which was an odd feeling that I really came from a perspective of anytime I saw something that I perceived as an injustice, I was like, I'm going to fix this, right? (laughs) (laughs) I will handle this with no equipment, no training, and I'm trying to do my best. And really, a big lesson there learned and with our team at US Squash was Hey, one on one, this isn't gonna work. We really actually need to be shifting minds, shifting culture. And there's a huge culture change and creating that to try and really shift, push the needle. And I remember working with you on that. And from the refereeing angle, it's we can't immediately make these students and these athletes the best referee on the planet, but we can give them tips quickly how to use the knowledge that they have and drive a little bit better. But I, I remember. Those were times of me getting it wrong. I'm still probably getting things wrong now, but <laughs> I don't know that yet.
1: If I can piggyback on that for a little bit, Connor, the, the thing that I remember working on with you and Kevin early on was the sportsman the conduct issue. And this is one of the reasons that I really love DBT and what I was talking about earlier. Bad sportsmanship, which we say, that's bad sportsmanship. Conduct, that's a conduct issue. And so we want it to stop in a sense in a punitive way. It's in that domain of coping and it's kids break rackets or throw rackets or mouth off, not because they're bad. In part, they need to be taught about etiquette and sportsmanship, but really they're stressed at a level where their their problem solving skills are gone. So you definitely need good refs. And that's a, that was my most pleasurable moments as a ref in the JCT world was instead of refing, sitting next to junior refs and empowering them to make calls louder with their voice, own the match with their voice, give a conduct warning. And that was the times when parents came up to me and instead of saying negative things about my reffing, saying, thank you so much for sitting with my kid and helping them. That that was really great.
0: When I think back on that time and any time an incident would occur on court, uh, on average is about eight to 16 people involved right? Because there's the two players on court, the two players refereeing the players, and then there's a, likely a coach involved, and then either a parent or guardian or two sets of them. So suddenly, any one incident that rose to a level where I needed to be involved, I'm, the the amount of managing of people and, and interacting and communication is really, it was challenging, right? Because you talk about those family dynamics, or so just think of how many different things are happening at once? Me being outside my depth at that time.
1: <laughs> I will say this, which hasn't been said yet in this conversation. When I say entourage, I also mean the coach. I really also mean the coach. If they're willing to participate, which I always hope they are, they need to be a part of this too. They have to be speaking the same language. They have to be given feedback about what's landing, what isn't landing. And many coaches are excellent at this, but a lot of coaches are do this, do it. Like, this is how I talk to you. And that there isn't that much interplay. And it's not, it's again, it's not out of negative. It's it doesn't come from a bad place. Their intentions are in the best place. Yeah, It's tough to fold in the coach because you want to pay them for their time. Pa- parents are on for the ride. They, they, they're generally happy to do this, but that makes sense.
0: So then after your chapter of, Of teaching and coaching squash at the high school level. You went on to a new chapter and tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, something was missing. I wasn't talking to people the way I wanted to talk to them. I wasn't talking, I should say, I I wasn't talking about the things I wanted to be talking about. I didn't want to be teaching the second declension anymore. I couldn't continue to rearrange my curriculum to keep it more interesting for me or to figure out how to make it better. I looked around, I saw the teachers that were doing it really well. I didn't think I was doing it all that well. I might not have been doing, I, I was doing it pretty well, but I wanted to be dealing with different issues. And so I had always been curious about being a therapist. I had been helped by therapists. And so I went to Smith College School for Social Work. They have a different model where you're on campus, you're learning during the summers, but your main work during the academic year is on your internship. So that was the idea that I would get many hours of direct clinical care. So the other thing about that was that then they don't have it anymore. It was one of the only social work schools that had a thesis requirement. And I was very surprised that my advisor said, yeah, do something on squash. And I did a whole thing with the Yale squash team. So I was working Dave Talbot. I asked him if I could get access to his players. Amazing guy, everyone knows Dave Talbot. He said, absolutely, tell me what we need to do and we'll get it done. It was amazing. And I wanted to write about what these people who were now playing in college, what their experience was as junior players from three levels, from the lens of human development, from the lens of human motivation and from the lens of their social surround. And the interesting thing about that is that you'll remember at that time, since we were still transitioning to softball, a lot of college teams at the top level had a a combo of international players and American players. So part of what was behind that was to study what was the difference in parenting in those groups. And it was really quite remarkable in what I found. I wasn't surprised, but it was quite stunning. What were the findings there? Yeah. One of the things was that international players, for international players, becoming an elite level player was about getting away from the parent. Uh, I found out that kids, no matter where they're from, India, from Europe, they went to tournaments with their peer group. They didn't go to, to, to tournaments with their parents. They were at, Their track was to make the national team, not to get into Yale or Harvard. So for international players, it supported the natural development of adolescence a, away from their parents and into being them, their own selves. American squash players, their parents drove them to the tournaments, pay, paid for, paid for lessons, attended lessons, and, and it had a whole different pressure structure to it. And it, it was much more about the kid, keeping the kid close to the parental orb and you'd be, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that from those two samples, coaches would tell me, my international players, they come to practice every day, they get nervous less and they play better in big matches. And so I was just wondering if there was a connection there. And I thought that was the connection, the parenting.
0: And what is it to use bad terminology or colloquial uh, free range parenting versus the helicopter or snow plowing?
1: We call it over-involved, over-parenting. That's another thing that I would would encourage. Don't go to the lesson. Yes, take the carpool option of send the kids to the tournament with someone else who's going, occasionally, not every time. Yeah, support it as much as you can. And I will say, since I did the lens of motivation, studying motivation was very interesting because we have this idea of of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation oh that kid really has the fire they want to learn it this other kid wants to learn it because he wants to win because he wants the trophy or he wants approval but really it's about what is the motivational landscape that's being set is the landscape about we're here to get better we're here to hone different aspects of ourselves we're here to have fun we're here to enjoy it we're here to see how good you can get versus we're here to get into a better college we're here to we're here to be ranked higher than our friends we're here to for other reasons and parents and coaches set that motivational landscape that's really incredibly important we now know the language about growth mindset. That's incredible. That book mindset by Carol Dweck mm. it's, everyone should read it after they read the body keeps the score.
0: How long did you take to, to or, or work with these players at Yale? How long were you interacting with them?
1: They each sat, I had 15 players agree to it. They each sat for one hour and I had a structured set of questions.
0: So this was all done in kind of a couple of weeks or a few weeks.
1: It took an entire academic year. So I I wrote it. I wrote it between two, some of my last academic year. But But working with
0: the players themselves.
1: Yeah, it was mainly their squash season. And I was so grateful to them for sitting with me for an hour when they had their coursework, when they had heavy practices. But yeah, it was just that short amount of time. Then it was so much fun compiling all that data, doing qualitative research and finding the themes that emerged. Yeah, I can
0: imagine. I'm curious. Uh, I feel like any time teams and this is true even for the armed services or all that whether it's boot camp, like shared experiences, right? What a, a sort of unique shared experience that this team went through of working with you during that season. Could you see any sense of like how your work with them impacted them as a team?
1: I wasn't really working with them in any way that was to change anything. I, I don't think so. A lot of them said at the end of the interview I really enjoyed this. This really gave me the time to reflect on, a, on an experience that I don't think I would have had. So I'd, I'd like to think they enjoyed it, but it was really for me to gather data. I don't know if I exactly answered your question. I, I think the team issue, if I can talk about that, I think because the international players had an entirely different structure where at an, at, at an earlier age, they were identified as people who could make the national team They had a cohort of of friends, so they were already used to being on a team, whereas the American players were used to being in competitive draws against each other. So being on a team was actually a shift for them. And another golf analogy here is that you can see the international players at the Ryder Cup do better, generally do better than American players in the team part of it. And the Americans do better in the international one-on-one Part of it, it's a similar thing. I think this team aspect is. We're an individualistic society. We like we we think of ourselves as self-made or something.
0: Yeah, very much for better or for worse. It's hard to know which aspect. What and that sort of that transition you from your teaching career into this new chapter, and then what else transpired before getting to where you are today?
1: It's interesting. You wouldn't be able to tell that from, from our time today because I talk a lot. But one of the things that the interviews did for me was they turned me into a listener rather than a talker. Mm. And then that's what sitting with people is, is. It's my job now is to listen, whereas my job before was to talk and impart knowledge and run a 50-minute class on the second declension. The other thing that happened was one of my first jobs. I got into the, a lot of my training and work now is in the field of trauma. So I was, and I was lucky enough to be in a veterans administration hospital, listening to veterans tell stories. And it's really, it doesn't work to interrupt or to weigh in. You're there to witness. You're there to hold space. They're very difficult stories. They're very sad. And... Listening and holding space is the thing to do rather than saying, Hey, you try being happier or whatever you might say. I I of course would never say that, but you could say something that just invalidates that experience for them. And so that, that was a big transition. And
0: when you were transitioning to listening, was that like, how comfortable were you with that as a skill
1: for you? It's still a growth edge when to say something and when to not leave it hanging in the air and just stare at, at stare together at the difficulty of being human. And not try to make it better or throw a palliative sentence at it. When you reflect
0: on your time as a social, wor- working with the Veterans Affair, which thank you for your service. That's a huge part of the continuum for our armed services coming back. Like, what, is there a moment that you're, A story that comes to mind or a moment that you're proud of, or yeah, like about that time, what was a moment that you
1: reflect on? That was such incredible. That was such an incredible experience. I'm so grateful for it. It was so soulful. I really, I think about it so often. I heard such painful stories. I learned about incredible resilience. I learned how to, how the we know this but the destruction of war lasts forever it lasts forever it goes so much past the day that we sign the treaty or whatever or we declare victory but one of the things i'm proudest of was that i started a yoga group i had been getting into yoga actually my experience with yoga was part of this big transition it got it it made it helped me realize there was something i wasn't tapping into and needed to and there was a lot of resistance there was a lot of resistance to giving my time to a yoga group. That VA had a pool and there was a big pool deck. And so the room was nice and warm and to get a, to get veterans A, to do yoga in the first place was a big deal. And then to do it in this environment where they were, there was this nice calm pool sitting there. We weren't in it, but it, I'm very proud of that. And it, was, it dovetailed with the VA looking at alternate modalities like yoga and the whole being more holistic mm. with their care i'm very
0: proud i was gonna that. um i was gonna ask you know when uh, oftentimes uh, as you can see there's a, a throughput like when we look back on things there's that perspective and what do you think that not just you but more the system of the va and how we're approaching it what are what is it that we're getting wrong about treatment
1: i think the va gets a bad rap i i they're having a when i was there they were having a hard time engaging the oef oif veterans they have this reputation of of a pill mill in the mental health side and the long wait times people say but i can't imagine a health system that's more equipped to to handle trauma they've done so much research uh, they've developed manualized protocols that are very useful for trauma. I think the thing that we're getting wrong is if you want traumatized people, send them to war. When we figure out the answer for war, we won't need the VA anymore. We won't need to put people back together in that way. It's so destructive. It destroys them to their sinews. It's very sad. As a health system, I can't even think of a better health system nationwide, integrated chart very interested in doing what's right i was going to ask on the other side of
0: that spectrum like what is it that they're doing well that they're doing right
1: yeah some of the things that i mentioned that their research on ptsd is cutting a cutting edge stuff they're this whole health model that they've that they're exploring is much more about being holistic and incorporating things like mindfulness and yoga and seeing that these things have an evidentiary base that those things will save them money, make their consumers' lives better. Great. One of the things
0: before we transition on to my quick fire section is just bringing this a little bit to a close and talking about you're doing now. And we've talked a little about the body of work you be doing, but wh- where are you now and where are you trying to go? And and talk a little bit about your sport DBT that you're trying to do and, and how can people learn more about it? What's going on there? So talk about where you are now and where you're going next.
1: Yeah. People can learn more about me as a thinker about sport through my blog, which is called Floating and Stinging. That's on my, that's on my website, which is altiusperformanceworks.com. But the sport DBT thing is, it doesn't have a house yet what i would really like to do is is go to clubs and have a night where the parents are there and talk to them about this and i think this the thing that i'm excited about is that this isn't squash specific that every sport has parents every sport has elite level players many sports get this really right but every family has hiccups along the way and i'd love to smooth out those hiccups for so many reasons, so that kids can enjoy sports, so that this can be something that strengthens their family. So that this is something that makes everybody a better person. And everything that we do, it's, if, we, if it's worthwhile, it makes us a better person.
0: Absolutely. And to hear the case study of Peter and where the family was versus where they end up, that feels like something most families might want to tap into. Appreciate the work that you're doing in that realm.
1: Yeah, I think if we realize how dependent we are on each other how interdependent we are, which is a develop, late a developmental state. We all need that. And it's hard for us, as we were saying earlier in this conversation, for a culture that prides itself on independence. Uh, really, the more we depend on each other, the more compassion we have for each other, the, the better everything is going to be. Maybe wars would be ended. <laughs> it's like wars. You,
0: you reminded me, completely agree. and And the surgeon general recently at least in the past year or two came out that uh, loneliness is going to be one of the most dangerous threats to uh, our society
1: i think for people in my age starting at my age in their 50s that it's already an epi- health epidemic it's a huge health epidemic at that time period it's i think there's a high risk for suicide loneliness is a serious problem because we haven't prized interdependence yeah
0: It feels like that could be a whole nother episode unto itself. But before we transition on, thank you for sharing your knowledge, your passion, and already know that the amount of people you've helped has been countless and there's more to come. So thank you for that.
1: Thanks, Connor. It's been really great to talk about these things.
0: Now we're gonna segue into the quick fire, which is just some of the questions I asked each guest that comes on. It's a great opportunity for me to get to know you a little bit more and not just in the way that I might know you already. So the first question I start off with is, do you have any favorite movies or documentaries?
1: There's a yeah. documentary about, Muhammad Ali is one of my heroes, and there's a documentary about his his fight, his rumble in the jungle with Foreman, and that that's inspirational to me. If I could say more about the documentary, there's a British documentary called Seven Up, and they follow a group of kids from the age of seven, and I forget where they are now, but they're pretty far along, and they film them every seven years. And the amazing thing about it is how strong character is. So the person at 49, if that, that's one of the divisible by seven, is the same kid you saw at age seven in mm-hmm. so many ways. And it mm-hmm. really does speak to what you're up against when you're trying to teach or coach. That, that is, is, I think about that documentary a lot. I like it.
0: The next question I have for you is what gets you fired up? And this can be something within um, – I'm actually just going to wait for the, the ambulance to pass. Yeah. The next question is, what gets you fired up? And this can be something that is either within the world of squash that you and I know or, or anything outside of it. it. doesn't It doesn't quite matter. And it can also be something that you're moved to action because of, of, of negative reasons or positive reasons. But what gets Matt Munich fired up?
1: You won't be surprised to hear this based on what I said about the documentary. What gets me fired up so much is the possibility for improvement and change. I I can think of several forehands that I worked with that were a mess before I started them and that they were just works of art after. I'm not just tooting my own horn, but you can make something better. The right intervention really does help. One of the reasons I absolutely love working with trauma as hard as it is, is that it really does help. Trauma treatment really does help Pe- people who are very debilitated by horrible things that have happened, you know, that you really can get better. Uh, you can't take away that incident or that history of trauma, but you, you really can make it better. That fires me up a whole lot. I really get fired up by that.
0: Yeah, when I learnt there was, what is it called? Traumatic growth. When I first yes. heard about that concept, yeah. I almost didn't believe it. And like, how could something terrible help you? And I've, uh, and you know some of my story, but I've gone through my own traumatic events and I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm in a better place now. And and not just even better from where I learned of the trauma or experienced the trauma, but really almost the best that I've been in my life. And I really do think that uh, there's an expression that comes to mind that you learn who you are when everything else is burnt away from you. <laughs> And that's what i had to go through and as much as that was a really challenging time for me challenge is putting it mildly i'm thankful for the experience because i've netted out in a better place
1: yeah it's really good to hear that i know that because of some of our conversations a lot of that is true for me as well i think one of the things that is also true about that i get fired up about or i'm fired up about now since it's a growth edge for me is when you're working with people who've experienced trauma, one of the things that has been so impacted negatively is their love for themselves. Mm. And you find out the mindfulness tradition has come up with an answer for that, and you can work on self-compassion. That is something that can get better. It requires practice. I'm learning some of those practices now. There, that's It's a growth edge, but that's really cool <laughs> that you can work yeah. on that. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. I love it
0: next question is the scenario is that you're going to give a ted talk and (laughs) the caveat here though is actually it can't be something that you're known for well anything we discussed here or that you're perhaps like the public persona of you would be readily known or available this could be an exploration of something you've been curious about to go study that you'd be given the opportunity to go do and learn Or maybe there's something hidden that we don't know about you, but what, if you're given the option to give a Ted talk, what would your Ted talk be about?
1: I hope this doesn't disqualify me or that, that, that this is still answering the question, but but this is connected to self-compassion. What I'd love to give a Ted talk on if I would give a Ted talk is about how to look at moments from your past that are in the cringe file. What do we do with the cringe Mm. file? Can we get traumatic growth out of the cringe file or does it stay in the cringe file? And is it some sort of corrosive thing that just accretes shame and increases our shame? And I, I would love to find an answer for that. I'm not sure I know an answer for that. DBT has one skill that is opposite action where I could say on this podcast, I could talk about something from my cringe file and, and that would help it so that it's not a secret. As they say in AA, you're only as sick as your secrets. But yeah, I think that's something I'm sure work has been done on it. There are experts on this, but what do you do with deep regret? And what do you do with the cringe file? Because you, there's a the cliche, we don't get a second chance, <laughs> but we can, again, there's another cliche. If we can learn from our mistakes, man, that, that we get better.
0: I actually hadn't heard that reference of calling it a cringe file, but I love it. <laughs> Automatically, I go to, there's probably moments in my life where I'll remember more, but they were more cut and dry versus the cringe. It it, it could lay out a sort of spectrum where more, more things become available to you. So I'll have to give that some consideration.
1: Uh, I wish I had a shorter cringe file, a smaller cringe file.
0: I just love giving the opportunity of, we've already imparted so much knowledge, but are there any other books, just whether it's for fun or you, you recommend to go read? It? And because this is a podcast, any podcasts?
1: As long as we're talking about squash, the book by Jonah Barrington, Murder on the Squash Court, I, I, don't, I just, every squash player should read Murder on the Squash Court. It's just, I, I think so. That's it's one of my favorite books. I think the podcast On Being, Krista Tippett, I haven't listened to it in a while, but when I was going through this career change and getting into yoga, I thought that I, I, I think it's a great podcast. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. Yeah. Let me, give me a second. I'm missing this opportunity on a book. There's a book. Yeah. I think everyone should read Thich Nhat Hanh's The Miracle of Mindfulness. If you need to be sold on mindfulness, it's, it's short, but, it's that's where I get that expression the acorn and the tree. It's that's a very important book.
0: I love it. I do know that that book, The Murder and Squash Court, was out of print. And I believe Joey Barrington was bringing the son of Jonah Barrington was bringing that back in to be reprinted. But I agree. I, I read the, a very old copy of that and it was just amazing how it was almost timeless, right? Think of how long ago it was written versus when I read it and everything was very applicable. So I completely agree fascinating read
1: yeah i think i got my copy from powell's the used book the used bookstore out in seattle i love it that's i cherish it my old copy
0: thank you i just want to thank you for your time matt and it's been like i said it's been such a pleasure having so many conversations offline and we both wanted to get this one that we finally got it recorded i'm so glad that we spent this time together and thank you for everything you do out there and changing people's lives and sharing your knowledge
1: Thanks a lot for having me, Connor. This is, this has been a lot of fun. I've, I've really enjoyed reconnecting with you and I, our conversations. This didn't surprise me. I <laughs> this was a good conversation.
0: Love it. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you've listened to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.